Welcome to Monday Matinee on the Mutual Audio Network. The following audio drama is rated PG for parental guidance recommended. A Christmas Carol in Prose Being a Ghost Story of Christmas by Charles Dickens Adapted for radio by Arthur Wilhite. A Merry Christmas, Uncle. God save you. Bah, humbug. Christmas a humbug, Uncle? You don't mean that, I'm sure. Stop, stop, stop. Let us begin at the beginning, lest we forget it altogether. Marley was dead to begin with. There is no doubt whatever about that. The register of his burial was signed by the clergyman, the clerk, the undertaker, and the chief mourner. Scrooge signed it, and Scrooge's name was good upon change for anything he chose to put his hand to. Old Marley was as dead as a doornail. Scrooge knew he was dead. Of course he did. How could it be otherwise? Scrooge and he were partners together for I don't know how many years. Scrooge was his sole executor, his sole administrator, his sole assign, his sole residuary legatee, his sole friend and sole mourner. Scrooge never painted out old Marley's name. There it stood, years afterwards, above the warehouse door. Scrooge and Marley. The firm was known as Scrooge and Marley. Sometimes people new to the business called Scrooge Scrooge, and sometimes Marley. But he answered to both names. It was all the same to him. Oh, but he was a tight-fisted hand at the grindstone, Scrooge. A squeezing, wrenching, grasping, scraping, clutching, covetous old sinner. Hard and sharp as flint, from which no steel had ever struck generous fire. Secret and self-contained, and solitary as an oyster. The cold within him froze his old features, nipped his pointed nose, shriveled his cheek, stiffened his gait, made his eyes red, his thin lips blue, and spoke out shrewdly in his grating voice. Nobody ever stopped him in the street to say with gladsome looks, My dear Scrooge, how are you? When will you come to see me? Beggars implored him to bestow a trifle. But what did Scrooge care? It was the very thing he liked, to edge his way along the crowded paths of life, warning all human sympathy to keep its distance. Once upon a time, of all the good days in the year, Christmas Eve, Old Scrooge sat busy in his counting-house. The door of Scrooge's counting-house was open that he might keep his eye upon his clerk, who, in a dismal little cell beyond, was copying letters. A Merry Christmas, Uncle. God save you. Bah, humbug. Christmas, a humbug? Uncle, you don't mean that, I'm sure. I do. Merry Christmas. What right have you to be merry? What reason have you to be merry? You're poor enough. Come then, what right have you to be dismal? What reason have you to be morose? You're rich enough. Bah, humbug.
Don't be cross, Uncle. What else can I be when I live in such a world of fools as this? Merry Christmas. Out upon Merry Christmas. What's Christmas time to you but a time for paying bills without money? A time for finding yourself a year older and not an hour richer? A time for balancing your books and having every item in them through a round dozen of months presented dead against you. If I could work my will, every idiot who goes around with Merry Christmas on his lips should be boiled with his own pudding and buried with a stake of holly through his heart, he should. Uncle! Nephew. Keep Christmas in your own way, and I'll keep it in mine. Keep it? But you don't keep it. Let me leave it alone, then. Much good may it do you. Much good has it ever done you. There are many things from which I might have derived good by which I have not profited, I dare say. Christmas among the rest, but I have always thought of Christmas time when it has come around. Apart from the veneration due to its sacred name and origin, if anything belonging to it can be apart from that, as a good time, a kind, forgiving, charitable, pleasant time. The only time I know of, in the long calendar of the year, when men and women seem by one consent to open their shut-up hearts freely, and to think of people below them as if they really were fellow passengers to the grave, and not another race of creatures bound on other journeys. And therefore, Uncle, Though it has never put a scrap of gold or silver in my pocket, I believe that it has done me good, and will do me good. And I say, God bless it. Let me hear another sound from you, and you'll keep your Christmas by losing your situation. You're quite a powerful speaker, sir. I wonder you don't go into Parliament. Don't be angry, Uncle. Come, dine with us tomorrow. I'll see you damned first. But why? Why? Why did you get married? Because I fell in love. Because you fell in love. Good afternoon. Nay, uncle. But you never came to see me before that happened. Why give it as a reason for not coming now? Good afternoon. I want nothing from you. I ask nothing of you. Why cannot we be friends? Good afternoon. I am sorry, with all my heart, to find you so resolute. We have never had any quarrel to which I have been a party. But I've made the trial in homage to Christmas, and I'll keep my Christmas humor to the last. So Merry Christmas, Uncle. Good afternoon. And a Happy New Year. Good afternoon. There's another one, my clerk, with fifteen shillings a week and a wife and family talking about a Merry Christmas. I'll retire to Bedlam. Scrooge and Molly's, I believe. Have I the pleasure of addressing Mr. Scrooge or Mr. Marley? Mr. Marley has been dead these seven years. He died seven years ago, this very night. We have no doubt his liberality is well represented by his surviving partner. At this festive season of the year, Mr. Scrooge, it is more than usually desirable that we should make some slight provision for the poor and destitute, who suffer greatly at the present time. Many thousands are in want of common necessaries. Hundreds of thousands are in want of common comfort, sir. Are there no prisons? Plenty of prisons. And the Union workhouses, are they still in operation? They are. Still, I wish I could say they were not. The treadmill and the poor law, are they in full vigor, then? Both very busy, sir. Oh, I was afraid from what you had said at first that something had occurred to stop them in their useful course. I'm very glad to hear it. Under the impression that they scarcely furnish Christian cheer of mind or body to the multitude, a few of us are endeavoring to raise a fund to buy the poor some meat and drink and means of warmth. We choose this time because it is a time of all others when want is keenly felt and abundance rejoices. What shall I put you down for? 
nothing. You wish to be anonymous? I wish to be left alone. Since you ask me what I wish, ma'am, that is my answer. I don't make merry myself at Christmas, and I can't afford to make idle people merry. I help to support the establishments I have mentioned. They cost enough, and those who are badly off must go there. Many can't go there, and many would rather die. If they would rather die, they had better do it and decrease the surplus population. Besides, excuse me, I don't know that. But you might know it. It's not my business. It's enough for a man to understand his own business and not interfere with other people's. Mine occupies me constantly. Good day, ma'am. Seeing clearly that it would be useless to pursue her point, the lady withdrew. At length, the hour of the shutting up the counting house arrived. With an ill will, Scrooge dismounted from his stool and tacitly admitted the fact to the expectant clerk in the tank, who instantly snuffed his candle out and put on his hat. You'll want all day tomorrow, I suppose? If quite convenient, sir. <laughs> it's not convenient and it's not fair. If I were to stop half a crown for it, you'd think yourself ill-used, I'll be bound. And yet you don't think me ill-used when I pay a day's wage for no work. It's only once a year, sir. A poor excuse for picking a man's pockets every 25th of December. But I suppose you must have the whole day. Be here all the earlier the next morning. I promise I shall, sir. Hmm. The office was closed in a twinkling, and the clerk went down a slide at the end of a lane of boys, twenty time, in honour of its being Christmas Eve, and then ran home as hard as he could pelt to play at blind man's buff. Scrooge took his melancholy dinner in his usual melancholy tavern, and having read all the newspapers and beguiled the rest of the evening with his banker's book, went home to bed. Now, it is a fact that there was nothing at all particular about the knocker on the door, except that it was very large. It is also a fact that Scrooge had seen it night and day during his whole residence in that place. Also, that Scrooge had as little of what is called fancy about him as any man in the city of London. And then, let any man explain to me, if he can, how it happened that Scrooge, having his key in the lock of the door, saw in the knocker, without its undergoing any intermediate process of change, not a knocker, but Marley's face. Marley's face. As Scrooge looked fixedly at this phenomenon, it was a knocker again. Scrooge was not a man to be frightened by echoes. He fastened the door and walked across the hall and up the stairs, trimming his candle as he went. Before he shut his heavy door, he walked through his rooms to see that all was right. Quite satisfied, he closed his door and locked himself in, double-locked himself in, which was not his custom. Thus secured against surprise, he sat down before the fire to take his gruel. As he threw his head back in the chair, his glance happened to rest upon a bell, a disused bell that hung in the room. It was with great astonishment and with a strange, inexplicable dread that, as he looked he saw this bell begin to swing. It swung so softly in the onset that it scarcely made a sound, but soon it rang out loudly, and so did every bell in the house. 
humbug still. I won't believe it. It came on through the heavy door and passed into the room before his eyes. Upon its coming in, the dying flame leapt up as though it cried, I know him, Marty's ghost, and fell again. The same face, the very same. Marley in his pigtail, usual waistcoat, tights and boots. His body was transparent, so that Scrooge, observing him and looking through his waistcoat, could see the two buttons on his coat behind. Scrooge had often heard it said that Marley had no bowels, but he had never believed it until now. How now? What do you want with me? Marley! Marley's voice, no doubt about it. Who are you? Ask me who I was. Who were you then? You're particular for a shade. In life, I was your partner, Jacob Marley. You don't believe in me. I don't. What evidence would you have of my reality beyond that of your senses? I don't know. Why do you doubt your senses? Because a little thing affects them. A slight disorder of the stomach makes them cheats. You may be an undigested bit of beef, a blot of mustard, a crumb of cheese, a fragment of an underdone potato. There's more of gravy than of grave about you, whatever you are. <laughs> you see this toothpick? I do. You're not looking at it. But I see it, notwithstanding. Well... I have but to swallow this and be for the rest of my days persecuted by a legion of goblins, all of my own creation. Humbug, I tell you, humbug. How much greater was his horror when the phantom taking off the bandage round its head as if it were too warm to wear indoors, its lower jaw dropped down upon its breast. Mercy, dreadful apparition, why do you trouble me? Man of the worldly mind, do you believe in me or not? I do. I must. But why do spirits walk among the earth, and why do they come to me? It is required of every man that the spirit within him should walk abroad amongst his fellow men and travel far and wide. And if that spirit goes not forth in life, it is condemned to do so after death. It is doomed to wander through the world. Oh, woe is me. And witness what it cannot share but might have shared on earth. And turn to happiness. You are fettered. Tell me why. I wear the chain I forged in life. I made it link by link and yard by yard. I girded it on my own free will. And of my own free will I wore it. Is its pattern strange to you? Or would you know the weight and length of the strong coil you bear yourself? It was full as heavy and as long as the seven Christmas Eves ago. You have labored on it since. It is a ponderous chain. Jacob, old Jacob Marley, tell me more. Speak comfort to me. I have none to give. Comes from other regions and is conveyed by other ministers to other kinds of men. Nor can I tell you what I would. A very little more is all permitted to me. I cannot rest, I cannot stay, I cannot linger anywhere. My spirit never walked beyond our counting house. Mark me. In life my spirit never rode beyond the narrow limits of our money-changing hole, and weary journeys lie before me. 
You must have been very slow about it, Jacob. Slow? Seven years dead and traveling all the time. The whole time, no rest, no peace, incessant torture of remorse. You travel fast? On the wings of the wind. You must have gotten a very great quantity of ground in seven years. Oh, captive, bound and double-ironed, not to know that for ages of incessant labor by immortal creatures, for this earth must pass into eternity before the good of which it is susceptible is all developed. Not to know that any Christian spirit working kindly in its little sphere, whatever it may be, will find its mortal life too short for its vast means of usefulness. Not to know that no space of regret can make amends for one life's opportunity misused. Yet, such was I. Oh, such was I. But you were always a good man of business, Jacob. Business? Mankind was my business. The common welfare was my business. Charity, mercy, forbearance, and benevolence were all my business. The dealings of my trade were but a drop of water in the comprehensive ocean of my business. In this time of the rolling year, I suffered most. Why did I walk through crowds of fellow beings with my eyes turned down and never raise them to that pleasant star which led the wise men to a poor abode? Were there no poor homes to which its light would have conducted me? Hear me! My time is nearly gone. I will, but don't be hard upon me. Don't be flowery, Jacob, pray. I am here tonight to warn you that you have yet a chance and hope of escaping my fate. A chance and hope of my procuring, Ebenezer. You're always a good friend to me. Thank you. You will be haunted by three spirits. Is this a chance and hope you had mentioned? It is. I... I think I'd rather not. Without the visits, you cannot hope to shun the path I tread. Expect the first tomorrow when the bell tolls one. Couldn't I take them all at once and have it over, Jacob? Expect the second on the next night at the same hour. The third upon the next night when the last stroke of twelve has ceased to vibrate. Look to see me no more, and look that, for your own sake, you remember what has passed between us. When it had said these words, the spectre took its wrapper from the table and bound it round its head as before. The apparition walked backward from him, and at every step it took, the window raised itself a little, so that when the spectre reached it, it was wide open. Scrooge became sensible of confused noises in the air. The spectre, after listening for a moment, joined in the mournful dirge and floated out upon the bleak, dark night. Scrooge followed to the window, desperate in his curiosity. He looked out, the air filled with phantoms wandering hither and thither in restless haste and moaning as they went. Every one of them wore chains like Marley's ghost. Some few, they might be guilty governments, were linked together. None were free. Many had been personally known to Scrooge in their lives. He had been quite familiar with one old ghost in a white waistcoat with a monstrous iron safe attached to its ankle. 
who cried piteously at being unable to assist a wretched woman with an infant whom it saw below upon a doorstep. The misery with them all was clearly that they sought to interfere for good in human matters and had lost the power forever. Whether these creatures faded into mist or mist enshrouded them, he could not tell. But they and their spirit voices faded together, and the night became as it had been when he walked home. Scrooge closed the window and examined the door by which the ghost had entered. It was double-locked, as he had locked it with his own hands, and the bolts were undisturbed. Hum. And, being much in need of repose, went straight to bed, without undressing, and fell asleep upon the instant. Stave two, the first of the three spirits. When Scrooge awoke, he was endeavouring to pierce the darkness with his ferret eyes, when the chimes of a neighbouring church struck the four quarters. So he listened for the hour. A quarter past. Half past. A quarter to it. The hour itself and nothing else. He spoke before the hour bell sounded, which it now did with a deep, dull, hollow, melancholy wall. Light flashed up in the room upon the instant, and the curtains of his bed were drawn. It was a strange figure, like a child, yet not so like a child as like an old man, diminished to a child's proportions. Are you the spirit, sir, whose coming was foretold to me? I am. Who and what are you? I am the ghost of Christmas past. Long past? No, your past. What business brings you here? Your welfare. I am much obliged, but I cannot help but think that a night of unbroken rest might be more conducive to that end. Your reclamation, then. Rise and walk with me. But, but the, the weather and the hour are not suited to pedestrian purposes. The thermometer is a long way below freezing. I am clad but lightly. I have cold upon me at the moment. The window. I am but immortal and likely to fall. Bear but a touch of my hand upon your heart, and you shall be upheld in more than this. As the words were spoken, they passed through the wall, and stood upon an open country road with fields on either hand. The city had entirely vanished. The darkness and mist had vanished with it, for it was a clear, cold winter day with snow upon the ground. Good heaven! I was bread in this place. I was a boy here. Your lip is trembling. And what is that upon your cheek? A, a pimple. Lead me where you will, spirit. You recollect the way? Remember it. I could walk it blindfold. Strange to have forgotten it for so many years. Let us go on. They walked along the road, Scrooge recognizing every gate and post and tree, until a little market town appeared in the distance with its bridge, its church, and winding river. These are but shadows of the things that have been. They have no consciousness of us. The jocund travellers came on, and as they came, Scrooge knew and named them, every one. 
The school was not quite deserted. A solitary child, neglected by his friends, is left there still. I know it. They left the high road and soon approached a mansion of dull red brick. It was a large house, but one of broken fortunes. There was an earthy savour in the air, a chilly bareness in the place, which associated itself somehow with too much getting up by candlelight and not too much to eat. They went across the hall to a door at the back of the house. It opened before them and disclosed a long, bare, melancholy room, made barer still by lines of plain deal forms and desks. At one of these, a lonely boy was reading near a feeble fire, and Scrooge sat down upon a form and wept to see his poor forgotten self as he had used to be. <coughs> I, I wish, but it's too late now. What is the matter? Nothing, nothing. There, there was a boy singing a Christmas carol at my door last night. I should have liked to have given him something. That's all. Let us see another Christmas. They were now in the busy thoroughfares of a city. It was made plain enough that here, too, it was Christmas time again. But it was evening, and the streets were lighted up. The ghost stopped at a certain warehouse door. You know this place? Know it? Was I apprenticed here? They went in. At sight of an old gentleman in a Welch wig, sitting behind a high desk... Why, it's old Fezziwig, bless his heart. It's Fezziwig alive again. Yo-ho there, Ebenezer. Dick? Dick Wilkins, to be sure. Bless me, yes. There he is. He was very much attached to me, was Dick. Poor Dick. Dear, dear. Yo-ho, my boys. No more work tonight. Christmas Eve, Dick. Christmas, Ebenezer. Let's have the shutters up before a man can say Jack Robinson. Hilly-ho! Clear away, my lads, and let's have lots of room here. Hilly-ho, Dick! Cheer up, Ebenezer. Clear away? There wasn't anything they wouldn't have cleared away, or couldn't have cleared away with old Fezziwig looking on. At length, all the Fezziwig's guests came in anyhow and everyhow. There were great dances, and there were forfeits, and more dances. And there was cake, and there was negus, and there was a great piece of cold roast. There was a great piece of cold boiled, and there were mince pies and plenty of beer. When the clock struck eleven, this domestic ball broke up. During the whole of this time, Scrooge had acted like a man out of his wits. His heart and soul were in the scene and with his former self. He corroborated everything, remembered everything, enjoyed everything and underwent the strangest agitation. It was not until now when the bright faces of his former self and Dick were turned from them that he remembered the ghost and became conscious that it was looking full upon him. A small matter small to make matter these silly folks silly so folks full of gratitude. gratitude. Small? Why, is it not? Why is it not? He has spent but a few pounds of your mortal money, three or four perhaps. Is that so much that he deserves this praise? It isn't that. It isn't that spirit. He has the power to render us happy or unhappy, to make our service light or burdensome, a pleasure or a toil. Say that his power lies in his words and looks, in things so slight and insignificant it is impossible to add to count him up. What the, the happiness he gives is quite as great as the cost of a fortune. 
What is the matter? Nothing particular. Something, I think. No, no. I think I'd like to be able to say a word to my clerk just now, that's all. My time grows short. Quick. Again, Scrooge saw himself. He was older now, a man in the prime of life. His face had not the harsh and rigid lines of later years, but it had begun to wear the signs of care and avarice. There was an eager, greedy, restless motion in the eye which showed the passion that had taken root, and where the shadow of the growing tree would fall. He was not alone, but sat by the side of a fair young girl in a mourning dress, in whose eyes were tears. It matters little. To you, very little. Another idol has displaced me, and if it can cheer and comfort you in time to come, as I would have tried to, I have no just cause to grieve. What idol has displaced me? A golden one. This is the even-handed dealing of the world. There is nothing on which it is so hard as poverty, and there is nothing it professes to condemn with such severity as the pursuit of wealth. You fear the world too much. All your other hopes have merged into the hope of being beyond the chance of its sordid reproach. I have seen your nobler aspirations fall off one by one until the master passion gain engrosses you. Have I not? What then? Even if I have grown so much wiser, what then? I am not changed towards you. Am I? Our contract is an old one. It was made when we were both poor and content to be so. Until, in good season, we can improve our worldly fortune by our patient industry. You are changed. When it was made, you were another man. I was a boy. Your own feeling tells you that you were not what you are. I am. That which promised happiness when we were in one heart is fraught with misery, and now that we are two. How often and how nearly I have thought of this, I will not say. It is enough that I have thought of it, and can release you. Have I ever sought release? In words? No. Never. In what, then? In changed nature, in an altered spirit, another atmosphere of life, another hope as its great end, in everything that made my love of any worth or value in your sight. If this had never been between us, tell me, would you seek me out and try to win me now? Ah, no. You, you think not? I would gladly think otherwise if I could, heaven knows. When I have learned a truth like this, I know how strong and irresistible it must be. But if you were free today, tomorrow, yesterday, can even I believe that you would choose a dowerless girl? You who, in your very confidence with her, weigh everything by gain, or choosing her, if for a moment you were false enough to your own one guiding principle to do so, I do not know that your repentance and regret would surely follow. I do, and I release you, with a full heart, for the love of him you once were. I... You may. The memory of what is past half makes me hope you will. Have pain in this. A very, very brief time. And you will dismiss the recollection of it, gladly as an unprofitable dream. 
from which it happened well that you awoke. May you be happy in the life you have chosen. She left him, and they parted. Spirit, show me no more. Conduct me home. Why do you delight to torture me? I told you these were your shadows of the things that have been, that they are what they are. Do not blame me. Remove me. I cannot bear it. He turned upon the ghost and wrestled with it. Leave me. Take me back. Haunt me no longer. In the struggle, Scrooge was conscious of being exhausted and overcome by an irresistible drowsiness and, further, of being in his own bedroom. He gave the ghost a parting squeeze in which his hand relaxed and had barely time to reel to bed before he sank into a heavy sleep. Stave three, the second of the three spirits. Awaking in the middle of a prodigiously tough snore and sitting up in bed to get his thoughts together, Scrooge had no occasion to be told that the bell was once again on the stroke of one. He felt that he was restored to consciousness in the right nick of time for the especial purpose of holding a conference with the second messenger. Now, being prepared for anything, he was not by any means prepared for nothing. And consequently, when the bell struck one and no shape appeared, he was taken with a violent fit of trembling. A quarter of an hour went by, yet nothing came. All this time he lay upon his bed, the very core and centre of a blaze of ruddy light which streamed upon it when the clock proclaimed the hour. He began to think that the source and secret of this ghostly light might be in the adjoining room, from whence it seemed to shine. Enter Ebenezer Scrooge. It was his own room. There was no doubt about that, but it had undergone a surprising transformation. The walls and ceiling were hung with living green. Heaped up on the floor to form a kind of throne was a vast assortment of foodstuffs, meats and vegetables alike. And in easy state upon this couch there sat a jolly giant, glorious to see who bore a glowing torch in shape not unlike Plenty's horn, and held it up, high up, to shed its light on Scrooge, as he came peeping round the door. Come in, come in and know me better, man. Scrooge entered timidly and hung his head before this spirit. I am the ghost of Christmas present. Look upon me. Scrooge reverently did so. You have never seen the like of me before. Never. Have never walked forth with the younger members of my family, meaning, for I am very young, my elder siblings born in these later years. I don't think I have. I am afraid I have not. Have you many siblings then, Spirit? More than eighteen hundred. A tremendous family to provide for. The ghost of Christmas present rose. Spirit, conduct me where you will. I went forth last night on compulsion, and I learnt a lesson from which is working now. Tonight, if you have aught to teach me, let me profit by it. Touch my robe. Scrooge did as he was told and held fast. 
The greenery and foodstuffs vanished instantly. So did the room, the fire, the ruddy glow, the hour of night. And they stood in the city streets on Christmas morning. They went on, invisible as they had been before, into the suburbs of the town and stopped to bless Bob Cratchit's dwelling with the sprinkling of her torch. Then uprose Mrs Cratchit, Cratchit's wife, while Master Peter Cratchit plunged a fork into the saucepan of potatoes. And now two smaller Cratchits, boy and girl, came tearing in. We've been to the baker's. We've smelled our goose. We just know it's ours. What has ever gotten your precious father, then, and your brother, Tiny Tim? And Martha, gone so late last Christmas Day by half an hour. Here's Martha, Mother. Here's Martha. Hurrah! There's such a goose, Martha. Why, bless your heart alive, my dear, how late you are. We'd a deal of work to finish up last night and had to clear away this morning, Mother. Well, never mind so long as you are come. Sit down before the fire, my dear, and have a warm, Lord bless ye. No, no. There's Father coming. Hide, Martha, hide. So Martha hid herself, and in came little Bob, the father, and tiny Tim upon his shoulder. He had been Tim's blood horse all the way from church and had come home rampant. Alas, for tiny Tim, he bore a little crutch and had his limbs supported by an iron frame. Why, where's our Martha? Not coming. Not coming? Not coming upon Christmas Day? Martha didn't like to see him disappointed, if only in joke. So she came out prematurely from behind the closet door and ran into his arms. And how did the little Tim behave? As good as gold and better. Somehow he gets thoughtful sitting by himself so much and thinks the strangest things you ever heard. He told me coming home that he hoped the people saw him in church because he was a cripple and it might be pleasant to them to remember upon Christmas Day who made lame beggars walk and blind men see. He seems to be growing stronger and more hearty. A Merry Christmas to us all, my dears. God bless us. God bless us. God bless us, everyone. Tim sat very close to his father's side upon his little stool. Bob held his withered little hand in his, as if he loved the child and wished to keep him by his side, and dreaded that he might be taken from him. Spirit, tell me if Tiny Tim will live. I see a vacant seat in the poor chimney corner and a crutch without an owner carefully preserved. If these shadows remain unaltered by the future, the child will die. No, oh kind spirit, no. Say he will be spared. If these shadows remain unaltered by the future, none other of my race will find him here. What then? If he be like to die, he had better do it and decrease the surplus population. Man, if you be man in heart, not adamant, forbear that wicked cant until you have discovered what the surplus is and where it is. Will you decide what man shall live, what man shall die? It may be that in the sight of heaven you are more worthless and less fit to live than the millions like this poor man's child. Oh God, to hear the insect on the leaf pronouncing on the too much life among his hungry brothers in the dust. Scrooge bent before the ghost's rebuke and trembling, cast his eyes upon the ground. But he raised them speedily on hearing his own name. Mr. Scrooge, I'll give you, Mr. Scrooge, the founder of the feast. The founder of the feast, indeed. I wish I had him here. I'd give him a piece of my mind to feast upon, and I'd hope he'd have a good appetite for it. My dear, the children, Christmas Day. 
It should be Christmas Day, I am sure, on which one drinks the health of such an odious, stingy, hard, unfeeling man as Mr. Scrooge. You know he is, Robert. Nobody knows it better than you do, poor fellow. My dear, Christmas Day. I'll drink his health for your sake and the day's, not for his. Long life to him. A Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. He'll be very merry and very happy, I have no doubt. There was nothing of high mark in this. They were not a handsome family. They were not well-dressed. Their shoes were far from being waterproof. Their clothes were scanty. And Peter might have known, and very likely did, the inside of a pawnbroker's. But they were happy, grateful, pleased with one another, and contented with the time. And when they faded, and looked happier yet in the bright sprinklings of the spirit's torch at parting, Scrooge had his eye upon them, and especially on Tiny Tim, until the last. And now, without a word of warning from the ghost, they stood upon a bleak and desert moor. What place is this? A place where miners live who labour in the bowels of the earth. But they know me. See. A light shone from the window of a hut, and swiftly they advanced towards it. Passing through the wall of mud and stone, they found a cheerful company assembled round a glowing fire. An old, old man and woman with their children and their children's children, and another generation beyond that, all decked out gaily in their holiday attire. The spirit did not tarry here, but bade Scrooge hold his robe, and passing on above the moor, sped whither to see. To Scrooge's horror, looking back, he saw the last of the land. But even here, two men who watched the light had made a fire. Joining their horny hands over the rough table at which they sat, they wished each other Merry Christmas in their can of grog. Again, the ghost sped on above the black and heaving sea, on, on, until they lighted on a ship. They stood beside the helmsman at the wheel, the lookout in the bow, the officers who had the watch. Dark, ghostly figures in their several stations. But every man among them hummed a Christmas tune, or had a Christmas thought, or spoke below his breath to his companion of some bygone Christmas day, with homeward hopes belonging to it. It was a great surprise to Scrooge, while listening to the moaning of the wind, to hear a hearty laugh. He said that Christmas was a humbug. As I live, he believed it too. More shame for him, Fred. He's a comical old fellow, that's the truth. And not so pleasant as he might be. However, his offences carry their own punishment, and I have nothing to say against him. I'm sure that he is very rich, Fred. At least, you always tell me so. What of that, my dear? His wealth is of no use to him. He don't do any good with it. He don't make himself comfortable with it. He hasn't the satisfaction of thinking, ha, that he is ever going to benefit us with it. I have no patience with him. Oh, I have. I'm sorry for him. I couldn't be angry with him if I tried. Who suffers by his ill whims? himself always here he takes it into his head to dislike us and he won't come to dine with us what's the consequence 
He don't lose much of a dinner. Indeed, I think he loses a very good dinner. Well, I'm very glad to hear it. What do you say, Topper? A bachelor is the wretched outcast who has no right to express an opinion on the subject. <laughs> do go on, Fred. He never finishes what he begins to say. He is such a ridiculous fellow. Ha! I was going to say that the consequence of his taking a dislike to us and not making merry with us is as I think that he loses some pleasant moments, which could do him no harm. I'm sure he loses pleasanter companions than he can find in his own thoughts, either in his moldy old office or his dusty chambers. I mean to give him the same chance every year, whether he likes it or not, for I pity him. He may rail at Christmas until he dies, but he can't help thinking better of it. I defy him. If he finds me going there, in good temper, year after year, and saying, Uncle Scrooge, how are you? If it only puts him in the vein to leave his poor clerk fifty pounds, that's something. And I think I shook him yesterday. It was their turn to laugh now at the notion of his shaking Scrooge. But being thoroughly good-natured, and not much caring what they laughed at, so that they laughed at any rate, he encouraged them in their merriment, and passed the bottle joyously. He has given us plenty of merriment, I am sure, and it would be ungrateful not to drink his health. I say, Uncle Scrooge! Well, well Uncle, Uncle Scrooge! A Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year to the old man, whatever he is. He wouldn't take it from me. But may he have it, nevertheless. Uncle Scrooge! Uncle Scrooge had become so imperceptibly gay and light of heart that he would have pledged the unconscious company in return and thanked them in an inaudible speech if the ghost had given him time. But he and the spirit were again upon their travels. It was a long night, if it were only a night, it was strange, too, that while Scrooge remained unaltered in his outward form, the ghost grew older, clearly older. Scrooge had observed this change, but never spoke of it. Looking at the spirit as they stood together in an open place, he noticed that its hair was grey. Our spirit's lives so short. My life upon this globe is very brief. It ends tonight. Tonight. Tonight at midnight. Hark, the time is drawing near. Forgive me if I am not justified in what I ask, but I see something strange and not belonging to yourself protruding from your skirts. Is it a foot or a claw? It might be a claw, for the flesh there is upon it. Look here. From the foldings of its robe, it brought two children. Wretched, abject, frightful, hideous, miserable. They knelt down at its feet and clung upon the outside of its garment. Oh, man, look here. Look, look down here. They were a boy and a girl, yellow, meagre, ragged, scowling, wolfish, but prostrate, too, in their humility. Where graceful youth should have filled their features out and touched them with their freshest tints, a stale and shriveled hand, like that of age, had pinched and twisted them and pulled them into shreds. Spirit, are they yours? They are man's, 
and they cling to me appealing from their fathers. This boy is ignorance. This girl is want. Beware them both in all of their degree, but most of all, beware this boy. For on his brow I see that written which is doom, unless the writing be erased. Deny it! The spirit stretched out its hand towards the city. Slander those who tell it ye. Admit it for your factious purposes and make it worse, and bide the end. Have they no refuge or resource? Are there no prisons? Are there no workhouses? Scrooge looked about him for the ghost and saw it not. As the last stroke ceased to vibrate, he remembered the prediction of old Jacob Marley and, lifting up his eyes, beheld a solemn phantom, draped and hooded, coming like a mist along the ground towards him. Stave 4, The Last of the Spirits The phantom slowly, gravely, silently approached. When it came near him, Scrooge bent down upon his knee, for in the very air through which this spirit moved, it seemed to scatter gloom and mystery. It was shrouded in a deep black garment, which concealed its head, its face, its form, and left nothing of it visible save one outstretched hand. I am in the presence of the ghost of Christmas yet to come. You are about to show me shadows of the things that have not been, but will happen in the time before us. Is that so, spirit? Ghost of the future, I fear you more than any spectre I have seen, but as I know your purpose is to do me good, and as I hope to live to be another man from what I was, I am prepared to bear you company, and do it with a thankful heart. Will you not speak to me? It gave no reply. The hand was pointed straight before them. Lead on, lead on. The night is waning fast, and it is precious time to me, I know. Lead on, spirit. They scarcely seemed to enter the city... For the city rather seemed to spring up about them and encompass them of its own act. But there they were, in the heart of it. The spirit stopped beside one little knot of businessmen. No, I don't know much about it either way. I only know he's dead. When did he die? Last night, I believe. Why? What was the matter with him? I thought he'd never die. <sighs> God knows. What has he done with his money? I haven't heard. <sighs> left it to his company, perhaps. He hasn't left it to me, that's all I know. <laughs> <laughs> it's likely to be a very cheap funeral, for upon my life I don't know of anybody to go to it. Suppose we make up a party and volunteer. I don't mind if a lunch is provided, but I must be fed, if I make one. <laughs> <laughs> well, I am the most disinterested among you, after all. For I never wear black gloves, and I never eat lunch. But I'll offer to go if anybody else will. When I come to think of it, I'm not at all sure that I wasn't his most particular friend. For we used to stop and speak whenever we meant. Bye-bye. Scrooge knew the men and looked towards the spirit for an explanation. They left the busy scene and went into an obscure part of town. The whole quarter reeked with crime, with filth and misery. 
Far in this den of infamous resort, there was a low-browed beetling shop where refuse was sold. Scrooge and the Phantom came into the presence of a grey-haired rascal, just as a woman with a heavy bundle slunk into the shop. But she had scarcely entered when another woman, similarly laden, came in too. She was followed by a man in faded black, who was no less startled by the sight of them than they had been upon the recognition of each other. Let the charwoman alone to be the first, let the laundress alone to be the second, and let the undertaker's man alone to be the third. Look here, old Joe, here's a chance, if we haven't all three met here without meaning of it. You couldn't have met at a better place. Come into the parlour. You were made free of it long ago, you know. And the other two ain't strangers. Come into the parlour. Come into the parlour. What odds, then? What odds, Mrs. Dilber? Every person has the right to take care of themselves. He always did. That's true indeed. No man more so. Why, then? Don't stand staring as if he was afraid, woman. Who's the wiser? We're not going to pick holes in each other's coats, I suppose. No, indeed. We should hope not. Very well, then, that's enough. Who's the worse for loss of a few things like these? Not a dead man, I suppose. <laughs> no, indeed. If he wanted to keep him after he was dead, a wicked old screw, why wouldn't he natural in his lifetime? If he had been, he'd have had somebody to look after him when he was stuck with death instead of lying, gasping out his last there alone by himself. It's the truest word that was ever spoke. I wish it were a little heavier one. And it should have been, you may depend on it, if I could have laid my hands on anything else. Open that bundle, old Joe, and let me know the value of it. Speak out plain, I'm not afraid to be the first, nor afraid for them to see it. We knew pretty well that we were helping ourselves before we met here, I believe. It's no sin. Open the bundle, Joe. But the gallantry of her friends would not allow of this, and the man in faded black, mounting the breach first, produced his plunder. It was not extensive. A seal or two, a pencil case, a pair of sleeve buttons, and a brooch of no great value were all. That's your account. I wouldn't give another sixpence if I was to be boiled for not doing it. Who's next? Mrs. Dilber was next. Sheets and towels, a little wearing apparel, two old-fashioned silver teaspoons, a pair of sugar tongs, and a few boots. I always give too much to ladies. It's a weakness of mine, and that's the way I ruin myself. That's your account. If you asked me for another penny and made it an open question, I'd repent of being so liberal and knock off half a crown. And now open my bundle, Joe. Uh, what do you call this? Bed curtains? Ah, bed curtains. You don't mean to say you took them down rings and all with him lying there? Yes, I do. What of it? You were born to make your fortune, and you'll certainly do it. I certainly shan't hold my hand when I get anything of it by reaching out. For the sake of such a man as he was, I promise you, Joe. Don't drop that oil upon the blankets now. His blankets? Who else is, you think? He isn't likely to take cold without him, I dare say. I hope he didn't die of anything catching, eh? Don't you be afraid of that. I ain't so fond of his company that I'd loiter around him for such things if he did. Ah, you may look through the shirt till your eyes ache, but you won't find a hole in it or a threadbare place. It's the best he's had, and a fine one too. 
They'd have wasted it if it hadn't been for me. What do you call wasting of it? Putting it on him to be buried, to be sure. Somebody was fool enough to do it, but I took it off again. If Caligo ain't good enough for such a purpose, it isn't good enough for anything. It's quite becoming to the body. He can't look uglier than he did before the one. <laughs> this is the end of it, you see. He frightened everyone away when he was alive to profit us when he's dead. <laughs> Spirit, I see. The case of this unhappy man might be my own. My life tends that way now. Merciful heaven, what is this? He recoiled in terror, and now he touched a bed. A bare, uncurtained bed, on which, beneath a ragged sheet, there lay a something covered up, which, though it was dumb, announced itself in awful language. The room was dark, though Scrooge glanced round it. A pale light, rising in the outer air, fell straight upon the bed, and on it, plundered and bereft, unwatched, unwept, uncared for, was the body of this man. Scrooge glanced toward the phantom. Its steady hand was pointed to the head. The cover was so carelessly adjusted that the slightest raising of it, the motion of a finger on Scrooge's part, would have disclosed the face. Spirit, this is a fearful place. In leaving it, I shall not leave its lesson. Trust me. Let us go. Still, the ghost pointed with an unmoved finger to the head. I understand you, and I would do it if I could. But I have not the power, spirit. I have not the power. Let me see some tenderness connected with a death, or this dark chamber spirit will be forever present to me. The ghost conducted him through several streets familiar to his feet, and as they went along, Scrooge looked here and there to find himself. But nowhere was he to be seen. They entered poor Bob Cratchit's house. Quiet, very quiet. The noisy little Cratchits were as still as statues in one corner, and sat looking up at Peter, who had a book before him. The mother and her daughters were engaged in sewing, but surely they were very quiet. And he took a child and set him in the midst of them. Where had Scrooge heard those words? He had not dreamed them. The boy must have read them out. Why did he not go on? The mother laid her work upon the table and put her hand up to her face. The colour hurts my eyes. The colour? Ah, poor tiny Tim. They're better now again. It makes them weak by candlelight. And I wouldn't show weak eyes to your father when he comes home for the world. It must be near his time. Past it, rather. But I think he's walked a little slower than he used these few last evenings, Mother. I have known him walk with Tiny Tim upon his shoulder. Very fast indeed. And so have I. And so have I. But he was very light to carry. Your father loved him so that it was no trouble. No trouble. And there is your father at the door. She hurried out to meet him, and little Bob came in. The two young Cratchits got upon his knees and laid each child a little cheek against his face, as if they said, Don't mind it, father. Don't be grieved. You've been working very hard, my dears. 
At this rate, you'll be finished long before Sunday. Sunday? You went today, then, Robert? Yes, my dear. I wish you could have gone. It would have done you good to see how green a place it is. But you'll see it often. I promised him that I would walk down there on Sunday. My little, little child. My little child. He broke down all at once. He couldn't help it. If he could have helped it, he and his child would have been farther apart, perhaps, than they were. He left the room and went upstairs into the room above, which was lighted cheerfully and hung with Christmas. There was a chair set close beside the child, and there were signs of someone having been there lately. Poor Bob sat down in it, and when he had thought a little and composed himself, he kissed the little face. He was reconciled to what had happened, and went down again, quite happy. They drew about the fire and talked, the girls and mother working still. However, and whenever we part from one another, I'm sure that we shall none of us forget poor Tiny Tim, shall we? For this first parting, there all was among us. Never, Never father. father. And I know, I know, my dears, that when we recollect how patient and how mild he was, although he was a little child, we shall not quarrel easily among ourselves and forget poor Tiny Tim in doing it. No, no never, never, Father. I am very happy. I am very happy. Mrs. Cratchit kissed him. His daughters kissed him. The two young Cratchits kissed him. And Peter and himself shook hands. Spirit of Tiny Tim, thy childish essence was from God. Spectre, something informs me that our parting moment is at hand. I know it, but I know not how. Tell me what man that was whom we saw lying dead. The court through which we hurry now is where my place of occupation is and has been for a length of time. I see the house. Let me behold what I shall be in days to come. The house is yonder. Why do you point away? The inexorable finger underwent no change. Scrooge hastened to the window of his office and looked in. It was an office still, but not his. The furniture was not the same, and the figure in the chair was not himself. The phantom pointed as before. He joined it once again and accompanied it until they reached an iron gate. A churchyard. The spirit stood among the graves and pointed down to one. Before I draw near to that stone to which you point, answer me one question. Are these the shadows of the things that will be, or are they the shadows of things that may be only? Still the ghost pointed downward to the grave by which it stood. Men's causes will foreshadow certain events, certain ends, to which, if persevered in, they must lead. But if the courses be departed from, the ends will change. Say it is thus, with that you show me. The spirit was as immovable as ever. Scrooge crept towards it, trembling as he went, and following the finger read upon the stone of the neglected grave his own name. Ebenezer Scrooge. Am I that man who lay upon the bed? 
The finger pointed from the grave to him and back again. No, spirit. No. <laughs> no. The finger was still there. Spirit, hear me. I am not the man I was. I will not be the man I must have been. But for this intercourse, why show me this if I am past all hope? For the first time, the hand appeared to shake. Good spirit, good spirit, your nature intercedes for me and pities me. Assure me that I may yet change these shadows you have shown me by an altered life. The kind hand trembled. I will honor Christmas in my heart and try to keep it all the year. I will live in the past, present, and future. The spirits of all three shall strive within me. I will not shut out the lessons that they teach. Oh, tell me I may sponge away the writing on this stone. In his agony, he caught the spectral hand. It sought to free itself, but he was strong in his entreaty and detained it. The spirit, stronger yet, repulsed him. Holding up his hands in a last prayer to have his fate reversed, he saw an alteration in the phantom's hood and dress. It shrunk, collapsed, and dwindled down into a bedpost. Stave 5. The End of It Yes, and the bedpost was his own. The bed was his own. The room was his own. Best and happiest of all, the time before him was his own. To make amends in. I will live in the past, present, and the future. The spirits of all three shall strive within me. O Jacob Marley, heaven and the Christmas time be praised for this. I say it on my knees. Old Jacob, old Jacob, on my knees. I am here. The shadows of the things that would have been may be dispelled. They will be. I know they will. I don't know what to do. I'm as light as a feather. I'm as happy as an angel. I am as merry as a schoolboy. I am as giddy as a drunken man. A Merry Christmas to everybody. A Happy New Year to all the world. Hello, whoop, hello there. There's the saucepan that the gruel was in. There's the door by which the ghost of Jacob Marley entered. There's the corner where the ghost of Christmas present sat. There's the window where I saw the wandering spirits. Oh, it's all, it's all right. It's all true. It's all happened. I don't know what day of the month this is. I don't know how long I've been among the spirits. I don't know anything. I'm quite a baby. Never mind. I don't I don't care. I'd rather be a baby. Hello, well, hello there. What's today? I What's today, my fine fellow? Today? Why it's Christmas Day. It's Christmas Day. I haven't missed it. The spirits have done it all in the night. They can do anything they like. Of course they can. Of course they can. Hello, my fine fellow. Hello. Do you know the poulterers in the next street but one at the corner? I should hope I did. An intelligent boy, a remarkable boy. Do you know whether they've sold the prize turkey that was hanging in the window? Not the little prize turkey, the big one. What? The one as big as me? <laughs> what a delightful boy. It's a pleasure to talk to him. Yes, my buck. It's hanging there now. Is it? Go and buy it. Walker. No, no, I am in earnest. Go and buy it and tell them to bring it here that I may give them the direction where to take it. Come back with the man and I'll give you a shilling. Come back with him in less than five minutes and I'll give you half a crown. I'll send it to Bob Cretchitz. <laughs> he shan't know who sends it. It's twice the size of Tiny Tim. Joe Miller never made such a joke as sending it to Bob's will be. 
The hand in which he wrote the address was not a steady one, but write it he did, somehow, and went downstairs to open the street door. As he stood there, the knocker caught his eye. I shall love it as long as I live. I scarcely ever looked at it before. What an honest expression it has on its face. It's a wonderful knocker. Here's a turkey. Hello! Hello! How are you? Merry Christmas. Why, it's impossible to carry that to Camden Town. You must have a cab. The chuckle with which he said this, and the chuckle with which he paid for the cab, and the chuckle with which he recompensed the boy, were only to be exceeded by the chuckle with which he sat down breathless in the chair again, and chuckled till he cried. He dressed himself, all in his best, and at last got out into the streets. Scrooge looked so irresistibly pleasant, in a word, that three or four good-humoured fellows said, Good morning, sir, and Merry Christmas to you. And Scrooge said often afterwards that of all the blithe sounds he had ever heard, those were the blithest in his ears. He had not gone far when coming on towards him he beheld the importunate lady who had walked into his counting-house the day before and said, Scrooge and Marley's, I believe. It sent a pang across his heart to think how this lady would look upon him when they met, but he knew what path lay straight before him, and he took it. My dear ma'am, how do you do? I hope you succeeded yesterday. It was very kind of you. A Merry Christmas to you, ma'am. Mr. Scrooge? <laughs> yes, that is my name, and I fear it may not be pleasant to you. Allow me to ask your pardon, and will you have the goodness? Lord bless me, my dear Mr. Scrooge, are you serious? <laughs> if you please, not a farthing less. A great many back payments are included in it, I assure you. Will you do me that favor? My dear sir, I don't know what to say to such munificent. Don't say anything. Will you come and see me? I will. Thank you. I am much obliged to you. I thank you fifty times. Bless you. In the afternoon, he turned his steps towards his nephew's house. He passed the door a dozen times before he had the courage to go up and knock. But he made a dash and did it. Is your master at home, my dear? Yes, sir. Where is he, my love? He's in the dining room, sir, along with mistress. I'll show you upstairs, if you please. Thank you. He knows me. I'll go in here, my dear. He turned it gently and sidled his face in round the door. They were looking at the table. Fred! Why, bless my soul, who's that? It's I, your Uncle Scrooge. I have come to dinner. Will you let me in, Fred? Let him in? It is a mercy he didn't shake his arm off. He was at home in five minutes. Nothing could be heartier. His niece looked just the same. So did Topper when he came. So did everyone else when they came. Wonderful party, wonderful games, wonderful unanimity, wonderful happiness. But he was early at the office next morning. Oh, he was early there. If he could only be there first and catch Bob Cratchit coming in late, that was the thing he had set his heart upon. And he did it. Yes, he did. The clock struck nine. No Bob. A quarter past. No Bob. He was full eight. Eighteen minutes and a half behind his time. Scrooge sat with his door wide open that he might see him come into the tank. His hat was off before he opened the door, his comforter too. He was on his stool in a jiffy, driving away with his pen as if he were trying to overtake nine o'clock. Hello, what do you mean by coming here this time of day? I'm very sorry, sir. I am behind my time. You are. Yes, I think you are. 
Step this way, if you please. It's only once a year, sir. It shall not be repeated. I was making a rather merry yesterday, sir. Now, I'll tell you what, my friend. I am not going to stand for this sort of thing any longer, and therefore... He continued, leaping from his stool and giving Bob such a dig in the waistcoat that he staggered back into the tank again. And therefore I'm going to raise your salary. Bob trembled and got a little nearer to the ruler. He had a momentary idea of knocking Scrooge down with it, holding him and calling people in the court for help and a straight jacket. A Merry Christmas, Bob. A merrier Christmas, Bob, my good fellow, than I have given you for many a year. I'll raise your salary, and I'll endeavour to assist you and your struggling family, and we will discuss your affairs this very afternoon over a Christmas bowl of smoking bishop. Bob, make up the fires, and, and buy another coal scuttle before you dot another eye, Bob Cratchit. Scrooge was better than his word. He did it all, and infinitely more. And to Tiny Tim, who did not die, he was a second father. He became as good a friend, as good a master, and as good a man as the good old city knew, or any other good old city, town or borough, in the good old world. Some people laughed to see the alteration in him, but his own heart laughed, and that was quite enough for him. He had no further intercourse with spirits, but lived upon the total abstinence principle ever afterwards. And it was always said of him that he knew how to keep Christmas well, if any man alive possessed the knowledge. May that be truly said of us, and all of us. And so, as Tiny Tim observed, God bless us every week. production of Red Hawk Radio Theater, recorded and produced in KRCU Public Radio Studios out of the campus of Southeast Missouri State University. Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol was provided by and produced in collaboration with some of the voices of KRCU. It was adapted for radio by Arthur Wilhite. The show was directed by Gabriel Freitas. It was narrated by Professor Paul Thompson. I, Clayton Hester, played Scrooge. Nick Bixler played Bob Cratchit, The Ghost of Christmas Past, and Topper. Gabriel Freitas played the Ghost of Christmas Present, Niece, the Young Girl, and Dilber. Satyajit Sarkar played Nephew, Peter, the Young Boy, and Man 3. Ellie Wookish played Scrooge's fiancée, Mrs. Cratchit, and Charwoman. KRCU Operations Manager John Moore played Marley, Fezziwig, and Man 4. Becca Peach played Charity, Man 1, and Girl. Kinsey Barger played Martha, Tiny Tim, and Man 2. Chad Beatty played Joe and the Boy. All sound effects are licensed under Creative Commons or are in the public domain. The opening rendition of God Rest Ye Merry Gentlemen, as well as this rendition of Adeste Fideles, is under Creative Commons and is performed by John Sales. Joy to the World is sung by the United States Army Choir. If you want to help support the productions of Red Hawk Radio Theater, you can do so by finding us on Patreon and becoming a subscriber. By becoming a patron, you'll have access to the exclusive upcoming 
Red Hawk Radio After Show. Stay tuned for next year's productions. Until then, Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, and a Happy New Year to all. Hi there. Are you a fan of all things horror? Yeah? You are? Well, in that case, find Tuesday Terrors, which is the mutual audio feed that comes out on a Tuesday, believe it or not. Shock horror, I know. But if you subscribe there, you'll find amazing horror fiction audio in your player every Tuesday. Yeah. Tuesday Terrors. Subscribe to the Mutual Audio Network. The Mutual Audio Network. Listening and imagining together.